Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio, a show featuring people and companies who are making a positive contribution to the world. This show will help you learn how to apply success principles in every area of your life so that you can make the most out of your skills and talents and accomplish more of your goals. To find out more about the show, please visit www.journeytosuccessradio.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, and My definite purpose in life is to encourage people to live positively with and through the many uh, challenges and adversities that life throws our way. You can find out more about me and this radio interview at the radio show's website, which is journeytosuccessradio.com. And with me today is a co-host is uh, an amazing man. He's read Think and Grow Rich 104 times and also owns seven car dealerships in the Pittsburgh area. Introduce yourself, Jim, and tell people about yourself and your website, please. So, my name is Jim Shorkey, and uh, actually, Tom, I've now read Think and Grow Rich 106 times. I'm on a mission. I'm really trying to figure that book out at a higher level. So, I've read it two times in the last 30 days, and my focus has been on the secrets and really, really, really trying to delve into that secret. And then, and then my uh, my second reading in conjunction, I read it twice, really, really quickly, was uh, to uh, even hone in that, on that secret even more, and really uh, a lot of highlighting and a lot of note taking about that book. So, yeah, 106 times now, and uh, that book has just led me to so much success in my life with respect to the car dealerships. Which, with respect to my personal life, health, wealth, love, happiness, and spirits. And so uh, that's my story, and I'm excited to be here today. Nice. Thank you so much, uh, Jim. And our guest today uh, was introduced to me by my amazing friend, Phil Taylor. Phil Taylor produced an audio program called The 17 Biblical Principles of Success. It's an amazing program. And our guest today was the on the very first principle of, oh, second one, sorry, humility. And so Al Walker is uh, our guest today. Al is a motivational humorist who brings strong content to any program. His career began in the training business, which uh, he and his organization continues to provide through programs in leadership, personal development, time management, strategic planning, and customer service. And I know he started uh, with the Dale Carnegie business. I love Dale Carnegie. Uh, Al is also an author whose two books, Thinking Big and Living Large and The Sheep Thief, have sold over 10,000 copies each. And I know The Sheep Thief is published by Tremendous Life Books. 
and Tracy Jones, and uh, I've interviewed her three times. I love Tremendous Life books. Al's experience is guaranteed to provide his, his audiences with a humorous, uplifting message that challenges people to think, lighten up, and laugh at the same time. His ability to immediately connect with his audiences, have them participating and enjoying themselves from start to finish while also providing them with solid, relevant content that encourages to think bigger, do what needs to be done to increase productivity, and thrive in these challenging times. It's guaranteed to make their world and yours more fit to live in. Now, because he spoke on humility on 17 Biblical Principles of Success, he hasn't listed that he is the past president of the National Speakers Association. He's been awarded their highest designation, CPAE, and the CSP. And, and so, welcome to the show today, Al. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to be with you. That is, uh, <laughs> when I opened your uh, bio or introduction, I was like, hey, he doesn't even talk about the fact that he was like past president of the uh, National Speakers Association, their highest designation. Um, that's a that's a real, real accomplishment, Al, and so I'm excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you, and I'm, a, I'm convinced I'm a product of NSA. It's just that all of those things that um, I have been, been involved in, and I'm still very involved with the foundation as chair of that board of trustees, but it, those are things that are... Um, blips on the continuum of life and they're important however they're not the most important thing and we just uh, just honored to be able to do all that amen amen now uh, i wouldn't be a real napoleon hill certified instructor if i didn't ask you uh when did you first read think and grow rich and was there someone special in your life who took you aside and said al read this book I graduated from the University of South Carolina in August of 1969 and had taken a job with economics laboratories out of, out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. They sold soap, electrosol and finish and dip it, coffee pot and cleaner, and uh, I was the only representative in the state of South Carolina. However, my job was not going to start until January of uh, 1970. So I had a window of time between August and December. I had been married. I got married my senior year in college, and I didn't have a job for a few months. And my dad and my uncle were in the real estate development business, and they asked me, or my dad said, come on down here. I know you got a house payment. I had bought a little house, and I know you got a house payment. you got to buy groceries. i got some things I want you to do, and I'll pay you enough every week to get by until your job starts. Well, I showed up the first day, and he ushered me into a, little office. I had avoided that place a lot because I just did not like the real estate business at all. I didn't want anything to do with it. And But I went in there and he had, uh, only because I'd grown up in it. It's a great profession. But I, my dad was in it and it just, he, he was taking away a lot from things we wanted to do and couldn't do because of that. So I just had a, that, I, I was my opinions were formed from that side, from inside the business. And but anyway, I went down there, and he put me in a little small office, and the only thing in the office was a desk and a bookcase and a phone and a stack of books. <laughs> he said, uh, your job between now and December 31st is to read these books, and I will give you 
and he had a, I don't remember the dollar amount, but I had to give him 10 handwritten pages every Friday to get my check from what I had read in the books. And I, he had Think and Grow Rich, uh, uh, he had, you know, just so many other books that were stacks of them. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I still have them up on my shelf today in my little classic book section, and I read How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was part of that stack. And, um, you know, uh, what was that, Babylon, uh, the book about finances and stuff. Anyway, I just I read oh. all of those books, and he, uh, looking back on that, I think I probably had a better education that last. <laughs> right. I, I had the entire, what, 16, 17 years I'd been in school. So. <laughs> right. Wow. My dad influenced me a lot to read that book and to read others. Wow, what a blessing. What a blessing when you're paid to read Think and Grow Rich and uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's a, There are books that I reread every year and How to Win Friends and Influence People is, is one of them. And uh, when I read that book and then I had a goal to meet the Prime Minister, of the then Prime Minister of Canada. And I used strategies from that book, wrote a letter and ended up meeting the Prime Minister of Canada one-on-one. -on -one. So it was like, wow, these strategies really do, or uh, principles really do work. And so I love Dale Carnegie. Uh, so, uh, Jim, I'm going to hog the whole show here, but you must have a question or two. Yeah, my question, Al, is, you know, that, that's, that's such a great story, first of all. So thank you for, for sharing that, that, that you know. And, and it's interesting, Tom says, if, you need, if we got paid to read Think and Grow Rich, and the, and the real fact is, is that we do get paid yes, to read Think and Grow Rich. Right. We, we always get paid to read that book. I've read that book 106 times, and I get paid every single time yep. I, I read it. As a matter of fact, you know, I look at, at my life uh, in terms of making money, the money I've made have has been a result of me reading and implementing that book. So yeah, you always get paid to read that book. But my question, Al, is how did you get started in the speaking business? I mean, so you're reading these books and you're starting a new job. How did you venture into the speaking business? That job I had with um, with uh, the company out of Minnesota selling soap. After about 11 months, my dad came to me and said, "There's a gentleman in town who." needs a young fellow who has a degree in marketing and my group my degree was actually in commercial science but it was through the marketing department of college of business administration and he said he wants somebody with a broker's license well even as much as i did dislike the business my dad had insisted i get my real estate <laughs> broker's license when i was real when i when i was eligible i guess 21 i don't know and i had that and i had um a GR sort of what GRI graduate realtors into GRI is a designation for that now that, that industry and I I got it back when all you had to do was sign your name and so I had those credentials along with a little bit of experience and uh, Daddy said this guy wants to hire somebody about your age to be sales manager for his construction company he's getting ready to start and I thought I I don't want to go in that in that business I never had and but I'll go talk to him and I was making. $7,200 a year plus a nice car and all my expenses in 1970 with EL. And I remember riding over to his house to talk to him, and I said, I'm not going to go change jobs for less than 10000 a year because I figured if I could make 10000 a year, I could retire in a couple of years. And <laughs> and I went over to him, and I said, i got to have ten a year plus a big car, something like a Bonneville. I don't think I even knew Mercedes existed or I would have asked for that, but I said, I want a Bonneville. And he, uh, and ten, he said, okay. And so I had to take the job, and I worked with him, and we were at a builder's convention in Houston, 
a year later, and in 1971, and he ran into a buddy of his. His name was John Ahern. He ran into a buddy of his from Savannah. They had been through Dale Carnegie together, and he turned to me and his son-in-law, who was the same age, which meant we were both about, what, 25, I guess, 24. And he said, I want you to, uh, when we get back, both of you are going to take the Dale Carnegie course. And he got he talked his way out of it, I guess being son-in-law. But I had to go take it. And I remember sitting there halfway through that, or during that program, with two buddies of mine from Carolina going, with all the arrogance of a 25-year-old, I don't know why we're in here. I can see why the rest of the people are in this class will <laughs> we'll endure this. And... About halfway through, Luther Kelly, who was the instructor, uh, told me at a break, he said, I want to talk to you after class and in my entire educational experience. When a teacher said, I want to talk to you after class, that was never good. That never turned out good for me. And so I sat there the rest of that class thinking, what did I do? You know, how'd I mess up now? And, but when we got through, everybody was gone except for me and Luther Kelly and he looked me right square now, and he said, I've been teaching this class for 15 years, and I've never seen anybody come through with the kind of talent you've got. You've got to do something with this. And he really was the impetus for me becoming a Dale Carnegie instructor. I still wasn't thinking about speaking. I don't think I even knew that the speaking business existed as such, where you got paid for talking for an hour or 45 minutes. And <laughs> uh, so I, I went to work full-time with Dale Carnegie and became a Carnegie instructor and certified in all their programs, and then... Uh, my last year, when I brought in about three or four hundred thousand dollars and got paid about thirty, I decided I could do some of this stuff on my own and make a little more money. And so I bailed out, had a two-year non-compete clause, and went to work with a, another friend of mine in Columbia for that two years, with the understanding I'd be gone in October of '81, which I was. And in '82 was my first full year in the business. Well, that in the end of '81, Robert Numa James from Glastonbury, Connecticut, had been my Carnegie instructor trainer. And he said, I just went, got back from a meeting in New Orleans, and I found your people. And it, he had gone to a National Speakers Association meeting. And I, he said, you got to join. And he, I had so much respect and for and trust in him. If he had said, you're going to be successful in this training business by sitting on your roof and eating a jar of peanut butter, I'd <laughs> peanut butter. And, uh, but he said, you got to join. I didn't inquire. I, didn't, I just called him up and joined. And I joined NSA and... January of 82 and really didn't attend my first meeting for a year. Just really, I was building a business I couldn't afford to. So, but I went to NSA and I did, I found my tribe, my, my people, and because of that, you know, got into the business. And I, I think what helps me is that there are a lot of speakers, people who have something they're interested in that start off speaking and they want to talk about it and they have this passion for it and and then somebody says, well, that's a great talk. Could you do a half-day workshop for us? And they've never done training before, so they take their 45-minute-hour talk and they stretch it out <laughs> for three hours, and it's a struggle for them. Whereas with me, having done, uh, you taught a was certified in teaching a class that lasted four hours a night for 14 weeks, and we taught full-day classes. And so I had this rich background of all these programs, and so to do three or four hours was a cakewalk And uh, back when we had overheads. And I remember my first NSA convention, somebody said, uh, you got to have one thing. Got He's kind of like that guy in, uh, what's that movie with the uh, out west anyway. He said, just do one thing. And so I was all depressed because I had been trained in customer service and in human relations, you know, personal development and sales and 
management training and I was offering my versions of all of that and other stuff out of books like Think and Grow Rich, etc. And I came back and called a buddy of mine in Auburn, Alabama, Robert Henry. I said, Robert, I need to try to figure out what I'm gonna, which one I'm going to keep and I'm going to throw the rest of them out because of what that guy said. Robert had been at that meeting. And he Robert told me something I'll never forget. He said, he said, Al, don't you throw out anything. He said, that guy said do one thing because all he knows is one thing. If he had two, he'd be doing them. And so uh, I, for me, my niche and my focus has been on, uh, on, on on this business, on helping people get better at what they do, on productivity. And so whatever I have to do to help somebody do that is what I'm going to be make myself good at doing. It's kind of like in the automobile business. You don't just sell one model and one color. Um, you sure. sell all different kinds, right? And that's exactly so, right. And that's what I, I offer all different kinds of training and programs that we do in addition to my uh, my speaking. But that's how I got into speaking business because of all of that and through uh, the National Speakers Association, which I just I highly recommend to anybody. It's, I think people think I must make money when I do that, but I don't make a dime. It's a professional association, and I just can't imagine being in the speaking business. It's like being a doctor and not belonging to AMA. You know, my <laughs> And uh, if you're a professional speaker, why don't you belong to the professional speaking organization, the National Speakers Association? So. Yep. And it's yeah. interesting you were saying about the car business. You know, um, we so in the car business, yeah, we sell multiplicity of cars, but we also we have a very unique business in that we sell new cars, we sell used cars, we sell service, we sell parts, we sell body repairs, body shop repairs, and we have a finance department. So we actually have six businesses in one, under one roof, and if we only Focused on one of those businesses, that is a recipe for going out of business. You have to have all six businesses functioning at a high level to be successful in our business, for sure. Exactly, exactly. I totally agree. That's, what, that's been my philosophy that we've got these, I don't know, eight, ten different income streams that help us make a halfway decent living around here. Amen. That's a great idea, man. Great idea. Now, I'll, uh, everyone, uh, every speaker has to. F- focus on topics that they're going to speak about but behind it all Jim Rohn was famous for his philosophy our philosophy of life and uh, uh, with your work through Dale Carnegie and then your own thoughts what is your speaking philosophy what is the principal idea behind your speaking I think number one I have a huge responsibility to my audience and I never lose sight of that. Uh, it's not about me. It's about them. And my focus has to be on them. It's amazing how early in my career, when I got my focus off of Al Walker and started putting it on the audience, things changed significantly. And I was able I need to feel that responsibility to, to the extent that I am as well prepared for them as I possibly can be. I need to be healthy because i got to be able to get there and get up on the stage and move around a bit and be able to express myself effectively. And then part of that is also to make sure I'm practicing what I'm preaching. Uh, there's nothing that we, I'm afraid we have some people in our business just like in the automobile business or in the radio business or in the whatever business that don't necessarily live what they tell other people they should be living. And, or be what they tell other people they should be. So I think it's important as a husband, as a father, as a member of my community and my world, and a, a brother and sister to, to, to my sister and two brothers, to uh, to be the person I talk about. I, I guess it 
part of my goal, and I got two goals in life. One is to be the uh, to be the person my grandchildren think I am. <laughs> the other is to I just you know I'm looking forward to that day when I'm gonna hear "Well done." Hey, yes. That's my uh, that's my basic philosophy: responsibility to my audience and to to be prepared and to be healthy, practice what I preach, and to live up to the expectations of myself, not necessarily those of, of others. Right. We're, uh, live so that you do get that well done, good and faithful servant. That'll be the greatest uh, compliment you'll ever receive. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate and ultimate. All right, Jim, back to you. So, so uh, another question that I that I uh, that I have is, you know, so what do you do different, Al, than the other speakers that we hear and listen to? What, what's what's different about Al Walker? Well, you started off with one of them when we first chatted. You asked if I was from somewhere up north. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Michigan. I also love to sometimes when people, when I'm speaking around the country, particularly you know, outside of the south. I don't get it in the south because they talk like I do, most of them. Anyway, but when I'm in other places, they'll say, where are you from? <laughs> Meaning, where's that accent from? And I love to answer sometimes, Brooklyn. The biggest <laughs> The biggest laugh I ever got to that answer was in a, the gift shop at The Rock in New York City at Rockefeller Square. We were in the gift shop, and this lady who actually lived in Brooklyn, and she asked where we were from, and I said, Brooklyn? She said, what part? I said, South. And uh, she uh, she died laughing. So we had a, I, we just had a great time with, I love joking around with people about that. But I, I, a lot of folks in our business, have asked before how do I learn to talk like that, and I said you got to be born with it, I guess. So, but to uh, so I tell people I speak what's that old line about I speak two two languages, English and Southern. So uh, <laughs> I was the first generation of my family not to have been raised on a farm down here in this neck of the woods, but had a father who made sure I knew how to plow and milk cows and bale hay and take care of animals. And uh, I, I I think that background of mine of just so many, I look back over my, my life. My dad was a Citadel graduate and graduate of the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, and expected me to go there, so he decided at birth I would be going to a school owned by his former roommate called Carlisle Military School for high school, which I did. And what they hadn't planned on was that when I got through with one tour of duty in a military school, I didn't want to do two. And so I didn't go to the Citadel like they had anticipated. That's why I'm a, a Gamecock. South Carolina, but I was halfway through my sophomore year, and Daddy said, "I guess you really aren't going to Citadel, are you?" I said, "No, sir, I am uh, not going to be doing that." He still he had trouble accepting the reality of that of all of that. But I think that, along with, and and what what I also bring to it is this this background of I mean, we've got like seventy five or eighty training modules that are three to four hours long, and and I can of course adapt those to a different time segments for people, and we've got a two-day program called Living and Working Together, The Art of Getting Along. Well, I combine a lot of stuff from, I, I was trained back in, by Dr. John Geyer. Does that name mean anything to either one of you all? No. Uh, Dr. Geyer developed the DISC profile. Oh, okay. He, he was the first one to come out with an instrument that a person could take and on their own figure out and find out what their behavioral style was. So. I was actually trained by him back in the late 
the 70s, one of the last program training sessions he did. And so we've done that for years, and now we do it. You know, it's all online. I've got a client up in Columbus, Ohio, that I'll be up there with in, in August. I worked with them two years ago doing the same thing. They've got some new people. We'll be doing a little bit of that, but I'll be with them all day long. And so I think that this background of, of knowledge and of experiences at my age now that I have enabled me to uh, put together a program that is really focused on and specific to that group as opposed to just coming in, in with a generic, you know, here's here's the same talk I've given 50 times, <laughs> I'm going to do it one more time for you. And so I can bring the best of those worlds in. And I, meeting planners have made a comment before that, because I tell them when I get to them, just tell me what drop dead time is. If I'm supposed to, if you've got me scheduled for an hour, and I'm supposed to be through at 11, but but I don't get up till quarter to 11, you'll get a 15 minute talk because I'll get you back on schedule. If you get me up at eight, you'll get a three hour talk. So you know it's uh, but we'll be through at 11, and you just tell me when you want me to walk off that platform. And a lot of people can't do that. So those those are a few few unique factors. Plus I'm cute. Plus, <laughs> <laughs> you're incredibly handsome, so that's another uh, distinguishing factor, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a humility thing. I remember, uh, you, know, you know, the name Liz Curtis Higgs. She wrote a bunch of books about uh, bad girls of the Bible and uh, more bad girls of the Bible. She, I don't know, she's written twenty books. She's a she's truly a speaker who became an author. That's what she does full time. She speaks very little now, but. She used to be on radio, and she was up somewhere on on live radio, and somebody on a call-in thing, and somebody from a, a prison called in to her and, and uh, asked her. He said, "So I got a bet going." Said, "I'm I tell people you're about uh, five seven, weigh about 110 pounds, and um, just uh, gorgeous and a blonde." And she said, "You you got it. That's it." Well, she was about six one, <laughs> like a. I mean, she she's a big gal. And she looked anything like that description, but but on radio, you know, you can do that. So I can tell y'all I'm cute and get away with it. Anyway. <laughs> now, uh, Al, at some point, uh, you're speaking and uh, uh, starting that business and working with Dale Carnegie to start is an amazing start. But uh, somebody inspired you to say, "Hey, Al, you should write a book," and. Uh, what did they do to cause you to believe that A, you could write a book, and B, you should write a book? Well, there were uh, there a couple of parts to the answer for that question. A guy named Jack Stedman, who was my junior and senior year high school English teacher, was a great man. And he, for some reason, took me under his wing and just really believed in what I was doing. I was on the staff of the the school newspaper. I was really involved with sports, and we had back then it was you do something athletic year round if you're an athlete. So I was doing something every season. It seemed like only one I didn't do was basketball. And if you've seen a picture of mine, I'm a big guy, and a <laughs> quarter inch vertical leap kept me off the basketball court. But I did everything else just about. And but I, I was involved with that school paper, and he encouraged me to uh, convince me I should write a column for that paper. It's called the Bugle. And I did. I started doing that, and it came out regularly. And matter of fact, my nickname in high school was Bear because of what a comment a coach had made. But 
so I called the article, the the uh, column from the Bears then back in uh, back in high school, and I had uh, he also had us write my senior year particularly a ton of themes, and we did a lot of that. And I, then I found out my first year in college that I had pretty much already been through that year, my senior year in high school, because I was fresh uh, English 101 at Carolina was a lot about writing themes and. I made an A in that class, and we won't we won't talk about chemistry or algebra or any of those others. But <laughs> made an A in English, and then uh, the, he was one. The other two were for my wife, Margaret. Uh, she said, "I am sick and tired." One day she said, "I'm sick and tired of going to these meetings with you, and having people ask me when it's over, does he have a book?" And having to say, "No, he doesn't have a book." Plus, she is a retired now. Back then, she was still working full time. She's an English teacher, taught senior English in high school herself, and she's got a master's plus 30, so she does most of my editing for me. But she uh, she said, I'm just, I'm tired of it. You just got to, you got to sit down and write a book. And Joe Batten, do you remember that name? Oh, yes. Yeah, Joe wrote, you know, Tough-Minded Management, and then he wrote Tough-Minded Leadership, and just a great friend. He he also was an encourager, and he and I were talking one day at NSA, and yeah, he said, I'm going to send you some ideas, and I want you to, to think about maybe running with them and the way he said it was I want you to walkerize them (laughs) and then I some things kind of came together about that same time in that I had been speaking long enough you know we've all have we all have this core material that you know we call signature stories Mm -hmm. and they're they're my stories they're things that have happened to me and one of the challenges we face in this business is other people taking other speakers' material. Mm. Uh, Doc Blakely, for instance, I don't know if you know that name, from Wharton, Texas, is a great guy, wonderful writer himself. He's written several books and fabulous man. And uh, he uh, he told me about going to speak at some group. I don't remember the group. This has been several years ago. And he wasn't into his talk. He said more than about four or five minutes. He began to feel uncomfortable, like the audience was a little fidgety. And But he finished it. And when he got through, he asked the meeting planner, said, what's wrong? What's going on? He said, well, the guy we had to speak to us last year did that exact same talk. (laughs) In the eyes of that meeting planner, Doc was copying that guy, when in fact that guy had literally memorized one of Doc's, a talk he'd heard Doc give. And so not just, that, that was a minor reason, but I wanted to get all that, core material of mine, those signature stories that I can use and take in a hundred different directions depending upon what I'm trying to focus on uh, and and put them in a book. So if nothing else, I can say, see, it's in a book. And this book was published. <laughs> That's my material. Not that I've ever had to do that or would ever do that. It's just that, uh, and that so that was my first my first book, Thinking Grow, uh, Thinking Big and Living Large, Thinking Grow Rich, listen to me. Thinking Big and Living <laughs> Large is about, uh, about the the things that I've shared over the years and that you know in my my talks I guess for the first 20 25 years and some of that material I still use uh, use today but the um the the second one that came along was uh came along for totally different uh totally different reasons but that that was my that was my first one thinking big and living large matter of fact I got a buddy of mine at our church who's he and I both drive a Toyota Solara convertible they had the same. We bought them the same day, same color, uh, <laughs> and same, his wife and my wife. We'll all take off in them. But he, uh, back, my tag on my car says T H N K B I G. Think 
thinking big, and on his is L-I-V-N-L-R-G-E. So when we park side by side at church, the title of my book is Across the Back of Our Car. <laughs> Very uh, cool. Very that's cool. A, that's a good friend who put part of the title of your book on their car. So, right, right, and parks beside you. <laughs> All right, back to you, Jim. Let me get uh, – so <clears throat> back to the uh, the whole – the, the book idea, which I, I think is um, is uh, is really, really wonderful. I, I haven't read your books, but based on the inspiration of speaking to you, I, I certainly will. I'm a big, big reader. So when you set out to write the book, what was your thinking? You know, in other words, what was the purpose of writing that book beyond what you just said that, you know, in other words, you sit down to write this book, I want to accomplish this with this book. What was your goal with the, with the first book? Well, that first one, uh, Thinking Big and Living Large, uh, one of the main reasons I wrote that was because so many times when I get through with a talk, even today, I'll get, I'll have somebody who comes up to me and, because in my talks I'll say something like, um, my favorite book says you got to love your neighbor as you love, and the audience always finishes that. And they'll come up to me and say, what's the title of that favorite book of yours? I didn't catch that. Mm-hmm. I'll I said, this is real easy. You got something to write with? And they said, yeah. And I said, write this down. B, I, B. And about the time I get to L, they either smile or they turn and bolt, you know, run the other way. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I reference that. And I'll, the second thing I get is people saying, well, they'll stand off to the side. And if y'all don't speak in, so when you see somebody standing off to the side while everybody else is speaking to you, you realize one of two things is about to happen. Either they're going to unload on you for something they didn't like that you did, or it's something else. And so this, I've had it many a time where they stand off and then come to me and say, "Can we? do you have a few minutes for us to talk? And I'll talk to them for about an hour about some issue in their life and how what I've shared might help them. And I, I remember telling a guy in Dallas, Texas one time who used to play for the Mavericks, and I wish I'd remembered his name, but I don't. I just remember he played for the Mavericks. He was about, in my opinion, I'm I'm six one. He must have been twelve feet tall. He, he, <laughs> anyway, he. Uh, but when, when we got through, I told him I said, you know, the the meeting planner that brought me here is convinced if you were to ask them that I'm in Dallas, Texas today because of her and her inviting me here. I said, but this you and I, what we've just talked about, tells at least the two of us that. Uh, God had another plan. He wanted me here for the two of us to get together, I believe. And so that, that the talk was just a medium to get us together. And that, that has happened to me so many times. And I wanted to be able to, part of it too, was I wanted to be able to put a book in their hand and say, here, keep this. Because people don't, they don't, they don't remember who we are a day after, an hour or two. They couldn't call a name if they had to, plus remember half of what we said. And so I'm afraid that's just the reality of humanity but I could put that book in their hand, and that would be something they could go back to, which a lot of people have, have done over the years and commented about it and emails to me and stuff like that. And I guess I didn't ask that question quite right. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, who was your target audience when you wrote the book? That's that's my question. Who, who was your target audience? Anybody who could read? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I've had ministers. I've had athletes. I've had... I speak to so many different kinds of groups. I've, I spoke to a leadership group with a hospital, and 
Matter of fact, one of my most memorable experiences was being up in Cincinnati speaking to all the car dealers for uh, one, of the, you know, one of the buying groups, you know, how you all do that. And uh-huh. uh, years ago, right before Hurricane Hugo, because I had to jump in a private plane at a group in, meeting in Myrtle Beach, had hired to, because they couldn't get a commercial flight. And we ran into Hugo and barely made it on time to talk from the headwinds. We didn't we didn't fly into Hugo. It was still a few days out. But the headwinds from it were making the plane go a lot slower, and it took us a lot more time to get there. But So in it, the group I was speaking to in Myrtle Beach was Tupperware. Here I've been with automobile dealers, you know, in, in Cincinnati, and now I was going to speak with people that work with Tupperware, and or I'd be with a group from a hospital. So literally... As a matter of fact, I was in where was I in Birmingham, I think, somewhere down in the deep south, and I was leaving a hotel. And as I was leaving to go speak somewhere, the door opened, and a lady said, uh, "Can I help you?" And I realized she's blind, mm-hmm. and I, I got tickled. Saying, no, I, I'm okay. And uh, I said, "It's interesting though that you would ask if you could help me. I should be asking if I can help you." She said, "Oh no, so I'm fine. I work here. I know this place backwards and forwards." And we started talking, and she, I told her where I was going to speak, and she asked if I had any books. And I said, yeah. She said, do you have it on tape? And no, I don't. She said, well, I, I don't. I, I have to listen to books. And I said, I understand. It was because of her that I put my first book on on tape. And wow. There you go. So that's the inspiration. That's, that's the answer to the question, and that's very cool. That's very, mm. very, very cool. Neat. Now, uh, Al, uh, somebody, uh, when you get started in the speaking business, people start giving you advice and ideas, and, and I've had some good ones uh, from people I admire, but what is the best advice you ever received about speaking professionally? In all total honesty, the best advice I ever got was two things. One, quit. As we call it down here, fixing to speak. Quit spending all your time getting ready to speak. Quit spending all your time doing websites and brochures and uh, all other things that go along with that, demo videos, and do the second thing, speak. Go out and talk. Find anybody in your, that you can to sit still long enough to listen to you and speak to them. Well, there's more than one. I remember when I first started, I had luckily gotten that advice and because when I started my business in October of 81, 82 was spent in the training business. That's what I was doing. But then when I went to NSA and realized I could make a living speaking, I got all excited about that. I said, you mean only 45 minutes and I don't have to have anything except me? No workbooks, no over, overheads back then, and uh, no no nothing. And that, that was the way it was. So I, um, I that's, that's when I jumped all over it. But I had the best advice I got was, don't don't spend all your time fixing to speak. Just go out and speak. And I literally went to anybody and everybody in my neck of the woods here who would. I spoke to a garden, to a women's garden club in their <laughs> house. Over in the West, must have had about a dozen women in there. But one of the women who were there, her husband was the uh, ran the, a plant out near the Columbia Airport that. Um, it's called Tamper, Canron, it's Canron Rail Group. They're out of Canada, and I, I, I guess it's still around. Canron is still around. Anyway, they um, and he hired me to come in and do training for everybody in this plant. As a result, she told him about me, and we got together, and the rest is, as they say, say history. So I remember that first year when I, when I really got it cranked up, I, I realized I could call on association execs here in Columbia, my 
hometown because that's the capital of South Carolina. And I learned, that's when I learned that associations kind of all conjugate, end up in the capital city, not so, to make it convenient for me, but because they go, they spend a lot of time in the state legislature. And so I called on several of those, actually booked a couple of talks, decided, well, that was pretty easy. So I went to Raleigh, North Carolina, and booked a room in a hotel and called on every association exec that I could up there. The lady who ran the association, I carried around a little, had a little cassette tape and a brochure, and I gave it out to everybody. And the lady who ran the North Carolina Society of Association Execs asked if I'd speak to them in about six months, and, and which I did. And that worked so well. I actually booked a couple of talks there, went to Atlanta. I uh, did the same thing in Georgia, and then went to Tallahassee, did another week there, association, association execs. And by the time I got through with that, I was back to speaking at that statewide group in North Carolina. And all of that, plus the training we were doing, just sat, you know, took all my time. I didn't have time to go to any more state capitals. We were, the, the uh, it, it was pretty intense. We had a lot of bookings. And in 1983, uh, yeah, 83, I did 237 bookings that year, and, <laughs> which is ridiculous. That's way too many. And, uh, uh, but, I, but that included everything from free talks to, you know, paying my fee back then, which was, I don't know, $1,000 maybe, 1500 something like that. And I remember one guy associated in Columbia bragged for years until his death about how he had gotten Al Walker to speak to his group in Hilton Head for $500. And... Uh, back in, he was one of the first ones that, that booked me, and uh, but I, that's that's kind of what I, you know, the, the the approach I had, I took, and I tell people, I don't know if that'll work for you or not. I know in, in here in 2000, and, you know, the, the 16, you know, this this era that we're in now, I don't know what exactly what I would do because I know the social, you know, social media is so strong, and we use it a lot ourselves. But I I still like that face to face. You know, method. I, I actually joke with people that a push ever comes to shove around here. I still got forty six states I hadn't been to, so <laughs> that was a long time ago. So that's my advice: quit, quit fixing to get ready to speak and speak. That's it. All right, good way to start. Great advice. Great advice. All right, Jim, you get the last question here today. Okay, so. Sort of along the same lines, uh, I, I, I want to, I'm going to get these books, uh, I'm looking at the sheep piece, so just uh, the, uh, tell me about this book, what's the, what's the background, the inspiration behind this book, The Sheep Thief? Yeah, The Sheep Thief is, uh, is allegorical, or Doc Blakely, that buddy of mine in, in uh, Wharton said you ought to call it, say it's uh, allegorical, and, uh, or Walker-agorical or something, anyway, but it's, uh, it's a story, and it's based upon a legend that in 1974, 1974 was a bad year for me. I don't know if you, I'm sure most people can look back over their life and pick their worst year. It may not be as bad as some others, or it could be 10 times worse than some others. And But in 74, my dad had talked me into leaving that company I'd gone to work with under his advice and coming back into the family business, which I really didn't want to do, but I did in March of 74. He went to the hospital in May. He'd been drinking a, bo- a bottle of Maalox a day, and he died in June of cancer. He was eating up. And but they didn't know it back then is what it was. And also, uh, the lady I'd married my senior year in college decided she wanted to see what the rest of the world looked like, so she wanted a divorce, and I ended up in that wonderful world, uh, he says sarcastically. And uh, it uh, just was devastating. In both of those cases, I had prayed for 
those to work out, my father, you know, to live and for my marriage to work. And neither one of those had happened. So I found myself in fall of that year in an apartment shaking my fist outside at God one day telling him he didn't exist. And I look back on that and still get, I still chuckle at the irony of that. If he didn't exist, why was I bothering to do that? So if I really believed it, which I obviously didn't at the time, and I went to a buddy of mine, Bob Johnson, who wrote the foreword to The Sheep Thief, and I said, Bob, I'm, I'm bailing out. I'm, I'm loading up this caprice I had at the time and my few belongings. I'm heading west. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to go somewhere else and start over. I'm tired of this place, and not many good things are happening right now. And he said, well, let me tell you a story before you do. And he told me this, the legend of the sheep thief that, uh, that is in that book, and it's about two young men who were in a village years and years and years ago were caught stealing sheep, and the, they were brought before the people of the village, and they decided their punishment, they were caught and brought before the people of the village, and they decided their punishment would be to brand them on their forehead with the letters S-T for sheep thief, so that everyone would know the rest of their life they were sheep thieves. Well, one of them left town and just all bothered and upset and embarrassed and uh, he died decades later He because as soon as he'd get to a town somebody would find out what it meant and he'd move on to another one but he died decades later destitute no friends no family broken a church mouse and but the other one stayed in town and he righted his wrongs and he actually ended up becoming the wealthiest man in the town and he gave to everybody and owned all the sheep on many hills you could see just about and he was walking down the sidewalk one day and a visitor to their village walked past him and as he walked past him he saw that scar of st on his forehead and a, a shopkeeper was there sweeping and he said uh, tell me about that guy just went by what's that st stand for the shopkeeper knew what it stood for but he also knew what the guy had done in the past 30 40 years of his life and what a difference he'd made in their town and he said the st on his forehead stands for saint and wow. so the book is, then it's a story about a guy who uh, who's about ready to bail out, and he ends up with this mentor who helped. There was a lady who was promoted over him in his job, and uh, she explained she had a mentor, and then the mentor, um, you know, gets with, he gets with this mentor, and the mentor has him do some things, and it's, and it's got a bunch of, you know, ideas in there about, you know, the things he had this guy do obviously that I want the reader to take a look at and decide to do and it's it's really about leadership we uh, we use it a lot in leadership programs but it's a uh, it's a it's an easy read and I that book I, I've been amazed I've I got a call one day from a cab driver in New York City who said that um, he said I just want you to know I got this book and it's changed my life and got a guy a call from a guy in um, Oklahoma said is there a support group that'll help people go through this book I said no but that's a great idea why don't you start one and, and I said, if you need to help, call me. I'll be glad to. Because in the book, I tell people, because the, the last step of, of the steps that this mentor tells um, the guy in his book is the uh, what I refer to as the summum bonum, which is the um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your strength. You know, that y- y'all are familiar with that verse. And yeah. that's the last step in the book. And there are others that are, you know, go along with some of that. So it's got a real strong spiritual bent to it. And, that's the other thing that's been interesting to me over the years, how many times meeting planners have said, I've listened to your video or from your, D- your DVD or your demo or, and I, or I've read your book and I, I I know you talk a lot about your faith, but our group is different. How about not do that when you're with us? And I'll say, sure, no problem. And I, every time, there's no exception to this now, every time I still do it. 
every time. I still talk. <laughs> I always do. And I don't know if God closes their ears or what, but I've never had one meeting planner come to me and say, I told you not to do that. Because when, when they see the reaction of their group to what I'm sharing, it apparently makes everything okay. All right. All right. So Amen. That was the emphasis the sheep thief. Amen. Great story. Great story. I'm going to read that book. That sounds like a great read. Good. Yeah, it's, it's available at bookstores and, of course, Amazon. Uh, of course, you can call you know, Tracy and him up at Tremendous Life Books, and they'll send you many of them as you want. Right. And at a good I'll price. <laughs> or or if, you, if you'll email me at al at alwalker.com uh, and give me your address, I'll send you one. And, wow. Uh, you know what? I'd, I'd rather buy it. I'd rather buy it. Uh, well, and, and I'll, I'll send you an invoice to then. <laughs> I'm glad to send you an invoice and scribble in it. So, <laughs> so. No, I don't want to pay for it. I think it's, uh, it's you know, every, hey, listen, you you wrote that book, you deserve to get paid. So that's well, thank you very much. And if you uh, anybody who's listening wants to get a copy of that book, they can get in touch with me and tell me they heard it on this, and I'll be glad mm-hmm. to, to get yeah. it to them. Amen. Like that, I'll, I'll scribble in it if they want me to. I do tell people when they, it's always so ostentatious to me, arrogant almost. I, I never assume somebody wants a book signed. And only if somebody asks me I, will I do that. But I often, when they ask me, I tell them, I said, well, um, my scribbling in it is going to make it worth a lot less when you go to sell it. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us uh, today, Al. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, like uh, Jim, I'm going to get the books as well. Big fan of Tracy Jones and Tremendous Life Books, so you're just another good reason to buy a book from them. And uh, enjoy yourself. I know yesterday you were with your two granddaughters. You are taking your 12-year-old yeah. granddaughter somewhere, so uh, yeah. that's uh, almost more fun and more uh, enjoyable than uh, speaking to large audiences and spending time with your grandchildren. Ten times more, I promise you. There, there, George. Jim, nice to have met you on this medium too. I wish you the best. Amen. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Journey to Success Radio. If you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed for the show, email Tom at tomtootall.com for details. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 